Hey, it's Max. I want to tell you quickly about our sponsor this week, the London Review of Books. The LRB is an incredible publication. It offers unrivaled coverage, not just of literature and politics, but also art and history and science and culture. It's Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, and it's home to truly some of the best writers in the world, writing in a way that feels unique to me. It's totally exhaustive and definitive. When you finish a piece in the London Review of Books, you do not need to read anything else on that topic. You can save more than 80% of the cost of a subscription to the London Review of Books by subscribing right now. You'll get six issues for just six bucks. All you have to do is go to lrb.me slash longform. That's lrb.me slash longform to get your discount. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Afternoon, Max. What have you got for us on the show this week? This week on the show, Dory Shafrir, who has uh, has had many media lives. Uh, her latest media life is uh, that she has a memoir out. It's called Thanks for Waiting. It's sort of about her many media lives and also just being like a late bloomer in general. But Dory is also a podcaster. She hosts the show Forever 35 and uh, Matt and Dory's Excellent Adventure, which is all about her uh, IVF journey. But before that, she was the executive editor at BuzzFeed. She wrote for Gawker. She wrote for the New York Observer. Aaron, this is a fun uh, trivia fact for you. She She's the person who wrote the hipster grifter story. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. It's an all-time Lammer classic. I almost wanted to just go into like a like a long sidecar there. That I'll I'll wait till we're off air there. Um, but it was really uh, it was really a blast to talk to Dory. I've wanted to have her on the show for a long time. But I'm, it's one of these ones where I'm glad I waited because she wrote a whole book about uh, her like New York media life, writing for Gawker. We talked about you know being mean and coming to terms with your own meanness. It was great. If uh, if you're uh, trying to compile a memoir in real time, do it with an email newsletter. It's a great anchor in time so you can remember what was interesting you, what you were working on, and uh, keep people up to date. We want to send a huge thanks to MailChimp for being supporters of this show for many, many years. You know, a lot of times on this show, we've said the good people at MailChimp and I just want to take a second and actually say who the good people at MailChimp are. It's Mark D. Christina, Sarita Alami, Lane Shakespeare, Sasha Brown. Those four people, in addition to many other people in MailChimp, but really those four people have made it possible for us to do this podcast for what is, as of this week, nine years, guys. Whoa. This is our nine-year anniversary this week, and uh, we just appreciate them. Thanks, you guys. Doxed, but in a good way. <laughs> Here is Max with Dory Shafrir. Hey, Dory. Hey, Max. A long time coming, this one. A long time coming. Indeed. We were supposed to do it once, and then um, I just I felt you were uh, I felt you were too saturated. <laughs> you thought I was overexposed. It wasn't that you were overexposed. It was that you had had a lot of what I thought were really good conversations when your novel came out, and I was worried that I wouldn't be up to snuff. I didn't, you know, I didn't take it personally, but I'd actually really been looking forward to doing this podcast, and so I was kind of bummed. Um, but you know, these things all come back around. You know, I recently read a book that's all about like why it's good to wait. 
Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> it was all about like um, patience. And uh, so I think it's good. I think it's good. I feel like this is our time. Yes, totally. And uh, I'm glad to be here with you. And I just finished your book. It's fantastic. I feel like, I mean, you and I know each other a tiny bit. Now I feel like I know you very well. Yeah. I mean, if you read my book, I do feel like I kind of put it all out there. Yeah. And the book in part is about getting comfortable with what you put out there. And I'm interested in that. I, I, I'm, I'm interested both in how, how you get those muscles in shape and then also how you decide what to hold back. But I feel like it would be derelict. I would not be doing my fiduciary duty to the Longform podcast if we did not start with your years in New York City media. All right. Let's do it. Because that's like the first third of the book. Yeah. You worked at The Observer. The book opens with my getting laid off from The Observer. <laughs> yeah. The Great Recession layoff from The Observer. You worked at Gawker. You worked at Rolling Stone. And then worked at BuzzFeed for years. Yep. And I wonder now, looking back on particularly that like Gawker Observer Rolling Stone era of your life like how do you remember it now yeah that's an interesting question i mean it was so different than my life now that it almost feels like it happened to a different person but it like it was a really fun time but there were a lot of highs and a lot of lows One of the things that was interesting to me about how you wrote it was so much of your work was happening on the Internet. Yes. But in the book, you're really writing about, like, what was happening offline for the most part. And I wonder when you say that about, like, the highs and the lows, were the highs happening on the Internet? I mean, some of them were. Like, you know, when I wrote the profile of the hipster grifter, that story like really went viral in a way that was still a little, felt a little bit new at the time. Yeah. That story came out in April of 2009 and we launched longform.org in April of 2010, like a year later. And the hipster grifter was one of like the inspirations for the site. Oh, wow. Oh, that's so like, cool. I, I, I just remember reading that story and being like, everyone should read this story. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, I really felt like I was at the center of things, not like me personally being the center of the universe, but that I was, I, I existed in kind of this, not to be like totally cliche, but this like beating heart of New York media. And I was a part of that. And I was kind of cognizant of that at the time. But I I think now, in retrospect, I realize just how much I was really in the middle of it um, in a way that, like, I don't know could happen now. Because even though, you know, so much of my writing was online and, and blogs had, you know, democratized <laughs> media, it was still a pretty homogenous world. Um, I mean, The Observer, I think, I think the newsroom was entirely white. Like, I don't remember there ever being a person of color while I worked there. Gawker.com, when I worked there, was all white. You know, it was just, it was like a very different world. And so I think about that. And I'm like, I was at the center of this very specific New York media world that is now kind of anachronistic. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of why I was asking, how do you remember it? Because I feel like there are probably people listening for whom 
feels both anachronistic and also like history. You know, like yes, like completely, like that time is gone. That is how I feel about it as well. And did it feel at the time like ascendant isn't quite the right word, but like, did it feel like it was going to last forever? I mean, so I I started at Gawker in the fall of 2006, I think late October, early November. And I left in August of 2007 and started at The Observer. And that period when I was at Gawker coincided with like the economic boom. <laughs> if you've ever seen like the big short <laughs> or something, you know, like yeah, yeah, it yeah. was this like bizarrely euphoric time where money was just being thrown around, including in media. Like I often covered parties and these parties were just like ridiculously extravagant. But I was this like young reporter who had never worked in New York media before. But I had heard tell of like extravagant media parties, like the infamous talk magazine launch party on Ellis Island was, you know, this iconic party that now I'm sure half the people listening to this are like, what is talk magazine? (laughs) (laughs) But if you were in media in the mid aughts, that party was like held up as this like pride before the fall of the previous bust, right? And so it sort of felt like we were back in that period. Like that was when Condé Nast launched Portfolio magazine and spent $100 million to launch a magazine. Like, anyway, to get back to the parties, like I would just go to these parties and open bar, past hors d'oeuvres to like for for a, a, a magazine issue launch party. Like, does that even happen anymore? Do magazines have parties for individual issues? I don't think they do. I don't think so. But this was like a common thing. I don't think they have in a very long time. Right. But now that I'm saying it, I'm like, that that happened? Like, <laughs> Radar would rent out Marquee to have a an issue launch party? What the fuck was going on? You know? Um, yeah. So I think there is this sense of like, wow, this is fun. But I don't think I had enough of like a real sense of like, was this going to last forever? I didn't know. We, you know, there were things that definitely, if you look back at like what we were writing about at Gawker, like it was clear to us that portfolio was a boondoggle and that Condé Nast was just spending way too much money on it. But there were other things that I I don't think we kind of processed. But then, you know, the market crashed, the Great Recession happened and and everything like screeched to a halt. Yeah, there's a lot in the book about that moment. You get laid off from the Observer, you go freelance for a while, and there's a real existential question of just like, will I ever have a media job again? Yeah. There's there's one more um, question from the like portfolio heyday time though mm-hmm. that I want to ask you about, which is like, I went back and read a bunch of your posts from that time, oh, from the like 2006, seven time. Uh-huh. They're not always super nice. No, they're not. Like, you are doing this work now that's so, like, inclusive and it is many things. It is also, like, involves feelings. Yes. It touches on the feelings. Yes. Yes. It's pretty striking to go back and read these posts from, like, 2006. Not a person who was um, 
super publicly focused on feelings. Like, you're just, like, sniping people. Yeah. And, you know, at first it was kind of intoxicating. Yeah. You know, to, like, be able to be so publicly mean. Yeah. Can you you describe that? Because I feel like... That's another thing that if you are younger and working in media right now and listening to this, like, there's no space. No one's mean now. No. No one No one has. Well, you know, I'm actually really curious to see what Leah Finnegan does with the new gawker. Leah Finnegan's gawker, as, as everyone has been referring to it. Like, whether it will take more of a mean posture but like I don't even know if that's possible now the way Nick Denton who founded Gawker Media and ran Gawker Media um, I feel like he always positioned us as like like we were the only ones like speaking truth to power you know and like we were the scrappy underdogs taking on the world and so you know when I started working there I definitely like internalized that and if we were the scrappy underdogs, then, like, everyone was fair game, right? Because we, right. like, we were never punching down because we were the underdogs. Which, of course, in retrospect, is, like, such bullshit, you know? <laughs> like, we had hundreds of thousands of people reading us, like, including the most, like, powerful people in New York media. So for us to kind of adapt this underdog posture was, like, a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, those underdog stories that you tell yourself though they can be very powerful very and like you know in some ways yes we were underdogs like we were not the new york times we were not we we had a staff of like five you know (laughs) like like we were not a big operation but i think what had become very clear was that even a very small staff when given a platform (laughs) can have a very large impact and so to go back to what i was saying before I think at first it was intoxicating and it was also a little scary because I was like, oh, I'm good at this. Yeah. Like I'm good at being mean. I'm good at being snarky. And people like responded, like the targets responded. And that was also satisfying. And then after a while, I was like, this is really exhausting. (laughs) 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 But like, you know, I only stayed at Gawker for 10 months because I just like, I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore being that, being that mean. There are two parts of that sort of section of your book, uh, like um, Mean Dory, we can call yeah. it. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> that stuck out to me. And one is like, I've kind of been obsessed with this question for years in these interviews, which is like the gap between the person on the page and the person of the rest of their lives. And my sense is, you know, from reading the book, that, like, right now the gap for you is really narrow. Yes. And at that time it felt like the gap was really wide. Like, you were writing these posts that, again, like, I just went back and read them. Like, they are sure of themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, They're mm-hmm. sure of their opinions. They're sure that the targets are deserving. Yeah. And what I didn't know when I was reading them back in 2006 and seven was that, like, you were going home and feeling incredibly unsure about where you were professionally, where you were personally. Yeah. And I wonder whether that gap weighed on you, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that the meanness of my writing 
on Gawker was in large part protective. Um, it was this kind of armor that I was able to sort of erect around myself. And I think in my like public life, there wasn't as much of a disconnect. You know, I still love gossip. Like that's, that's still something that I really enjoy. And so, but I think I was still like deeply insecure. And so in a way, being mean, like on the page, as it were, was a way to kind of protect myself. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second. Tell you a little bit more about our sponsor this week, the London Review of Books. Now, the LRB is Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, but they cover so much more. Literature, politics, art, history, science, culture. I've been reading the London Review of Books for years because of longform.org. We have featured literally dozens and dozens and dozens of articles from the London Review of Books. But there's this thing about LRB stories that feels unique to me, which is that they're just definitive. It's a place where writers can go in depth on basically anything. You pick it up, you don't know what's going to be in there. But what you do know is that the work is going to be thoughtful. It's going to be creative. There are going to be writers you're excited about. Patricia Lockwood writes for them all the time, and I'm always excited to see her byline, James Meek, all these incredible writers, but also people whose names you don't know. You're going to find new writers in the London Review of Books, and all of them are going to be doing world-class work. You should subscribe, and right now you can save more than 85% off the cost of a subscription by going to lrb.me slash longform. You'll get six issues for just $6 at lrb.me dot me slash long form get the london review of books delivered to your house you will not be disappointed there's also this moment that didn't actually happen at gawker it happened at slate mm-hmm. where there was an idea for an article about chuck klosterman's author photos yes and like it gets kicked around in an editorial meeting and then you get asked to write the piece and you're like kind of honored that you get to get to write this thing is funny. And yeah. And then it's only later that you realize like the reason they asked you to write it was because no one else wanted to write a piece making fun of Chuck Klosterman. Yes. I was an I was an intern. Right. And I guess the, I, I wondered whether to what extent that carried through to that time in your work too, like did it feel on some level like you were being asked to like take like the bullet for being that person while other people got to sit back and sort of benefit from it but not deal with what I imagine are like actual real like sort of psychic tolls of doing that work, you know? Yeah, and I mean, Chuck Klosterman has had me blocked on social media for years. (laughs) (laughs) But like I had, yeah, that that situation is one that I look back on with like a very different lens than I had at the time. Um, I mean, I had never even read a Chuck Klosterman book. I didn't know what his author photos looked like. And so when they were like, Dory, you write this. I was like, okay. And like you said, flattered, because as an intern, you're kind of, you feel like you're like begging for scraps, right? Like, and so I wrote this piece, like dissecting his author photos (laughs) in like this really mean way. And... It got this, like, great 
I mean, great, quote unquote, response, because I think people were like, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is a weird piece for Slate to be running, for one thing. And like, but it was funny, you know, if you were kind of on board with it. And in my mind, again, this sort of underdog feeling of like, well, I'm nobody. I'm a Slate intern. Chuck Klosterman is like best-selling author. Like, who cares if I write an article making fun of his author photos? Like, that is not going to matter to him in the least. But like, of course it matters. And now, in hindsight, you know, I would be upset if someone did that to me. But that's not how I thought at the time. Yeah. And the idea that like you're being kind of hung out to dry by your editors is another thing that I only realized sort of in retrospect. And that also, that happened a couple times at Gawker too, where someone would ask me to write like a hit piece essentially. And I'd be like, okay, write the piece. And then only later did I realize why, like, why why was I asked to write this specific piece about this specific person and put my byline on it? Like, this wasn't something I pitched. This was something that someone asked me to do. And like, I don't know what their motivations were. And I think that then, you know, subsequently having been an editor, being on both sides of of the table, as it were, I'm like, that that was really shitty. Yeah. It reads that way. And I hadn't quite thought about it in those stark terms before I read your book. Just that, like, the degree to which it was like, uh, I, the editor, think this will be good for this website. Yeah. Um, it will be bad for the person who's the subject of the article. And I don't want to deal personally with the fallout of that. So I'm going to put it on somebody else. Who has no power. None. And, you know, we've talked to lots of people who worked at Gawker on the show over the years. And I feel like there's been a fair amount of, like, processing of that time, you know? Mm-hmm. But that specific dynamic was somewhat new to me. The idea that, like, these young people were being brought on basically to, like, light themselves on fire a little bit. Yes. Completely. Completely. And, you know, I think Nick Denton in particular was, like, was cognizant of that. And that's why there was such a kind of rotating cast of young people who he would just bring in. Because, you know, you did get kind of notoriety from working at Gawker. Yeah. Um, yeah. In a way that, like, ultimately I think was probably good for my career. But, like, ugh. <laughs> like, gross. Um, and I think also I didn't want to see it for a long time because I didn't want to see myself as, like, a quote-unquote victim Mm-hmm. You know, like I was like, I had agency. Like, what are you talking about? And like now, it, now that I'm like older and have been in actual positions of power, I'm like, that was fucked up. Yeah. Was there a way? I mean, you were, you had a lot of power at BuzzFeed, power that you ended up giving up a couple of years before you left. And I wonder how that time informed how you handled power. Well, you know, I remember for a while I was editing um, a lot of personal essays as part of the ideas section. And I remember being like really cognizant of the idea of like, I don't want to be publishing stuff that just sort of like hangs people out to dry, you know, because there's so many personal essays out there where someone like 
shares the most intimate details of their lives. It goes viral. And then they're, what are they left with, you know? Right. And, and particularly at BuzzFeed, like, your job was to put things on the website that would go viral. Yes. That was the job. Yes, exactly. So I definitely felt like I had a responsibility to people in that regard, especially freelancers. How do you balance those two things, though? You know, it's like, because sometimes the best ones are the ones that do end up being read the most, are the most sort of like intimate and revealing and vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to have conversations with the writer. Like, what are you going to do if this goes viral? What are you going to do if like the per- like if they're writing about a person? What are you going to do if the person who you're writing about reads this? Kind of assessing like do they have the support mechanisms in place to like handle it, you know? Mm. Um but on the flip side, like sometimes those essays are really great for people's careers. So you don't want to like squash that either. Yeah, it just seems like a like a tricky dance to me. It's a tricky it's a it's a really tricky needle to thread. But you know, most of those were pitched to me. It wasn't like I was asking someone to do a hit piece on, you know what I mean? Right. It wasn't like like you were you were out there searching for someone to um do the Chuck Klosterman author photo of personal essays. Yes, exactly. Can we talk a little bit about BuzzFeed? Yeah, let's do it. So you were employee, like, what, 65, I think? Mm-hmm. Ben Smith hired you to help, like, build out the news operation. You know, I don't know how many, like, hundreds of people joined in the years after you joined, but, like, it became a different place while you were there. Yeah. I guess in a general sense, I was just interested in how you thought about writing about that time, which is both, like, very recent history. There are a lot of people who shared it with you and all of them are journalists. Like, yes, it's one thing, you know, you wrote a novel called Startup, which sort of like mocks a fair amount of what was going on at BuzzFeed at the time and various startups in New York. But like, I just want, it just seemed hard as I was reading the book, it just seemed hard to me to figure out how do you, how do you write about a place that A, you didn't leave that long ago, B, many people that you hired still work for Right. Uh, like, it seems tricky. How do you do that? Yeah, it was tricky. I, you know, I had to like really sort of personalize it. And I had to say, I'm not, you know, I'm not writing a history of BuzzFeed, <laughs> right? I'm writing a memoir. And part of that is how BuzzFeed kind of fits into my personal narrative. And so I had to think about like what aspects of my time at BuzzFeed are important to this narrative and are important to the story. Not everything was, but I I tried to sort of cherry pick those moments that I felt like in some way helped move the narrative along. That makes sense to me. I think part of what I was interested in is just like you were the executive editor at one point. Yeah. Like in my experience, executive editors are dealing with like a lot of HR stuff and a lot of people's feelings and managing conflicts and it's just like yes it's a bunch of interpersonal stuff that defines that job yes and there's very little of it in the book mm-hmm. and i i mean that choice makes sense to me but it just felt like i was trying to imagine you writing about what your days were really like yeah there's one there's one scene where i talk about 
having to navigate some like interpersonal stuff between someone who reported to me and someone who was on another team who were just like constantly at each other's throats. Yeah. And, and I did feel like so much of my day was just putting out fires. It, it was just, it was constant. And I don't think I like fully understood. I definitely didn't fully understand that going into it. And I definitely had, I remember at Rolling Stone, about halfway through my time there, they brought on this like whole new um, leadership team to run the website. And one of the people they brought on, her title, I think her title was managing editor. I think. I don't even I don't even remember what her title was. But I remember and I would talk about this with my coworkers. I'd be like, what does she do all day? <laughs> like she literally does nothing. She doesn't edit anything. She doesn't assign anything. She just like drops in every once in a while with these like random comments about things. She's never at her desk. Like, you know, just like, what does this person do? Yeah. And then when I became executive editor at BuzzFeed, I was like, oh, I know what she was doing all day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? she was dealing with bullshit all day. She was dealing with bullshit. Yes, like literally all day. And I think until you've had to be in that role, there's no understanding what it actually entails. Why do you think that it doesn't work when writers and editors become managers? Why does that break? Because I think that the skills of being a great editor and the skills of being a great manager are sort of fundamentally at odds. And so I think journalism as an industry has historically made this fatal error of assuming that someone who is an amazing editor, like the path for promotion should be to become a manager. When in fact, it should be to just stay a great editor like why would you take someone off of a job that they're really good at and then fill their days with bullshit <laughs> you know and i and i think that like we need great managers in journalism and in every industry um and we need people who don't you know feel like it's just bullshit <laughs> um but i think that first of all there needs to be more training. Like there needs to be more man like management is something that you don't just know how to do, but that seems to be the collective wisdom. Were you good at managing? No. What made you bad at it? I think some things were out of my control. And I think some things there were there were things that sort of like the Chuck Klosterman realization. I kind of like much later realized like, oh, this is how I should have dealt with this. Or, oh, this person was just this person who reported to me was just managing up because a lot of people who reported to me had their own teams. And so I was kind of two degrees removed from the people on their teams. And so I was basically just like going with what they told me. Right. Right. About what was happening. But like they were probably also shitty managers. <laughs> You know, like I didn't actually, I wasn't a good enough manager to actually be able to tell if they were good managers or not. Right. It was just like a, like a bad management stack. Yes, exactly. And it just sort of snowballed. Um, well, I mean, this is one of the things I'm so interested about you, Dory, is like your employee 65 at this like media rocket ship thing. 
you like keep moving up with it. You get to the place where like the Byzantine and awful org chart like sort of all runs up to you. And instead of staying in New York, you go to LA and then instead of like continuing to climb that ladder, which in my experience, like basically everyone does. Like very few people get to the top of a ridiculously Byzantine org chart and then raise their hand and are like, I would like to stay, but I do not like this position on the org chart. I would like to go down like several rungs. Yes. That is a super rare thing. And that's what you did. Like you just, you left that job and started writing. Mm -hmm. How did you both realize that that's what you wanted and needed And then how did you take the step once you did realize it to like actually make it happen? Well, I was pretty miserable in my job and. Why? Well, that was the thing. I couldn't like totally pinpoint what it was, like what aspect of my job was causing me so much misery. And then I realized, oh, I don't like managing people. You know, I was in my early 20s, I was in a PhD program for history. And I remember suddenly being like, I don't like teaching. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just don't like it. And the track I was on was to like be a professor where you're obviously like teaching a lot. And I was like, I don't think this is something that like I'm going to come to enjoy. I just, I don't like it. I don't think this is what I want to do. And so I quit. And it was kind of a similar thing where I was like, what is the thing that's making me miserable? Oh, it's managing people. Like there's other aspects of this that I enjoy. Like I really love editing. And I like like directly working with writers. And I like directly working with like an editor who doesn't have a team to manage. But I did not enjoy the job that my job had turned into. And so I started having conversations with Ben about it. And I think he, by the time I was like having those conversations, I think it was pretty clear that the situation I was in was like becoming a little bit untenable. Like he had asked me if I would be willing to move back to New York because I think it was tough for me to be managing remotely. I was coming to New York every like four to six weeks. Yeah. It was just like it was it, it wasn't working. And so that was that was kind of how I pitched it. Was it hard to give up that power? Yes and no. No because there was like there were so many aspects of it that I was just like done with. But yes because I'm a person who like likes to know what's going on at all times like with everyone and so I kind of lost access to that in a way that I hadn't totally anticipated. Like I didn't know what was going on at the company in the same way that I used to. Yeah. And how does that interact with like ambition? Well, I struggled with this too because I was like I felt like there was a certain path that I was supposed to be on that kind of ended with becoming like editor-in-chief of a website or a magazine or whatever. And my experience as executive editor showed me, like, I don't think this is what I want to do. And so then it was like I had, you know, had a sort of reckoning with myself. Like, if this isn't it, then what is it? Mm -hmm. And 
had to sort of like look around at people whose careers I like really respected who were not on that track, you know, who were writers or did other things. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And this also coincided with feeling very like creatively stifled in 2015, at the beginning of 2015, I wasn't doing any writing for BuzzFeed. I wasn't doing any writing at all. And so I decided to write every day in January of that year and just like see what happened. And that was what eventually became startup. And so I think doing that and realizing like, oh, this is another, this is a thing that I'm good at and that I actually enjoy and feel fulfilled by was important. Do you feel like that, that thing being able to sort of like figure out what you want is a through line for you? Like, um, being in your PhD program and realizing, oh, I don't really want to be teaching and being executive editor at BuzzFeed and being like, I don't really like running stuff. Like having access to that, is that a thing you've sort of like always been able to do? Or is that something, is that something you learn? I think that it's something you like cultivate. And I think it's something that I have never gotten like fully good at. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think I, yeah, I mean, I guess I have always been good at, I'm not afraid to quit, I think. Well, I mean, it's not, it's not just the, um, the quitting, right? It's like not afraid to take a risk and change what you're doing. Yeah. I think there's a distinction between those things. You know what I mean? It's not just quitting. It's like giving something up. Some like clarity of path and security. And, and I think that's hard. I think that's hard for people to do, give that stuff up. Oh, for sure. Because I'm in, yeah, this is a through line of my book is like figuring out what are the things that I really want and what are the things that I feel like I should want or the things that I'm feeling pressured to want. And that, that was definitely part of the resigning of the executive editor role for sure. And then eventually, you know, you wrote, at BuzzFeed for a while, some incredible stuff, but lost some motivation for it. And in the meantime, started hosting podcasts on the side. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? So the first podcast I actually hosted was um, one that Jenna Weiss-Berman produced when she was at BuzzFeed. I did a 10-episode podcast called Rerun, where I had a guest on every episode and we would talk about an episode of old TV that they chose. And that was super fun. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. Like this is fun. (laughs) Um, and then about a year later, my husband and I were doing IVF and he's been in podcasting since like 2008. And I suggested to him that we start a podcast about our our experience doing IVF and like do it in real time. And he was kind of like, why would we do that? (laughs) 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 And, but we did. And that was a really, that's been a really rewarding experience. And so then in 2017, my friend Kate Spencer texted me and said, do you want to start a podcast about skincare? And I said, yes, I'd love to. And I don't think I saw it initially as like an escape route, (laughs) but it resonated with people so quickly that it became clear that I could leave my job at BuzzFeed and just do that full time, essentially. Yeah, the show's called Forever 35, and it did, right? 
basically immediately, it didn't just have like an audience in terms of listeners, but it had this whole like community around it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think thinking back on it, I think our timing turned out to be like perfect. You know, Trump had been in office for almost a year at that point, And I think a lot of people were like, what is happening and feeling really powerless. And one aspect of their lives that they could control was like what they put on their faces. <laughs> um, and people were kind of taking refuge in skincare. And so it started as a podcast about skincare and then very quickly became more of a podcast sort of about self-care in general. And so I think we were able to offer this like respite from what was happening in the world, but not in a way that felt like, oh, we're just like sticking our heads in the sand, but it found an audience really quickly in a way that I wasn't expecting. So eventually you leave BuzzFeed, even though, as you describe in the book, the sort of writing lane that you had carved out for yourself felt like on paper a dream drop. You're making great money and could write about whatever you wanted. Mm -hmm. You leave and you do your own thing. Mm -hmm. And from the outside, Dory, it seems like um, it's just going so well. <laughs> it seems like it's amazing. What What are the challenges of running your own thing that people don't don't see? Like, what's hard about this? Because from the outside, it looks like uh, you and Kate are just are just like um, sitting back and, and having the time of your lives. I'm really lucky to have Kate. We we were friends before this, but not like super close friends. But we I think we really like complement each other. And she's a great co-host and a great business partner. And so that makes it easy. I think there's not that many negatives, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> like, I'm really lucky to do what I do. Like, we have this podcast where, like, we talk about our lives and, like, give advice to people. And this amazing Facebook community of, you know, people, there's, like, a, a gajillion spinoff groups of our main group. And it's just, it's this world that has kind of taken on a life of its own. Is there a gap between, like, who you are on the show and, and who you are in the rest of your life? I don't think so. I don't talk as much shit. <laughs> no, I don't talk. <laughs> I don't talk that much shit in my real life anymore either. We can definitely there's, talk shit if you want to. If there's shit, okay, if there's, cool. If you want to go back, channel some like 2006 story, <laughs> just like fillet some people. I know on the all podcast. my media. All my media gossip is like 15 years old. <laughs> um, no, it's like yeah, it's 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 me. How do you decide what to keep for yourself? Like, I mean, the book is, it's it's really really intimate. And I did wonder reading it, and I've wondered this listening to the show too. Just like, what, what do you say for yourself? Because at this point, like, who you are, your work, this like brand you've built, they're all like pretty overlapping in the Venn diagram, mm -hmm. you know. And I kind of wonder what's like sitting in the part of that Venn diagram that's like just for Dory. Hmm. Interesting question. I mean, I can't really say because that's what's just for me. Yeah. I guess I was hoping you could talk in generalities about it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think there's stuff about, like, my family that I don't talk about. 
um, both my like immediate and my extended family that I don't talk about on podcasts or really write about. So that is, that is like something that I like keep for myself. And I'm also really mindful of how I talk about my son on podcasts and social media. Do you ever wonder if he's going to like go back and listen to his mom and dad do a hundred episodes of a podcast about IVF? I mean, we've talked about it, but I'm also like, I don't want to like flatter myself that he would take the time to do that because it's (laughs) so many hours of podcasts. Like I feel like if he wants to, Godspeed. It's like listen on like two X speed. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm curious. Like, you know, 20 years from now, like, what, what will that be like? Like, will people still be podcasting? Probably. I mean, do you do you ask that question more generally about this like lane that you've carved out for yourself? I mean, like, it feels like this amazing thing that you've found this this way to do work where that gap feels really, really narrow if it exists at all. But do you think that can last? Do you worry about that? Is that sustainable? I mean, I don't know, but it's something that I think about constantly. And I think that's also a little bit of like PTSD from having lived through like multiple recessions and like busts um, is that, you know, I know that everything is a boom and bust cycle. Like right now I can make my living from podcasting, but I don't know what like the advertising market for podcasting is going to look like in five years or even one year. Like the blog advertising market cratered, (laughs) like, you know? Um, And so one of the challenges of like being my own brand, quote unquote, is like I am always I feel like I do always have to think about like, what is the next thing? Because just in my experience in media, nothing is ever good for too long. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so I'm trying to like, diversify myself. (laughs) (laughs) I have one more question. I'll let you go. Okay. We were talking at the beginning about, like, the underdog stories that we tell ourselves and the underdog story that Gawker told itself. And I do believe that that, that is among the most powerful stories that we can tell ourselves is, mm-hmm. that, is that we are the underdog. And I, I wonder if you, if you still feel like an underdog. I don't. I don't think I'm, like, the most powerful person in media, but I don't feel... I don't feel like an underdog, certainly not in the way that I did when I was at Gawker. I think I'm now much more kind of cognizant of like the platform and the reach that I have and like the influence that I have. And I know that because we hear from listeners about it all the time. And so I take that responsibility like really seriously. And I think if I saw myself as an underdog, that could be really dangerous so I don't know. I, I think I'm a little more self-aware than I used to be. But when you know that, I mean, part of the reason those underdog stories are powerful is because they allow you to do things that otherwise you wouldn't feel good about doing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I guess I wonder, like, well, once you internalize that you are either no longer the underdog or never were, like, what do you do with that? I don't really know how to answer that. Because I think... You know, 
it's also like a fluid situation. Like I don't see myself as an underdog, but in terms of like power dynamics, there are dynamics where I am the underdog. I am less powerful than some people, but do I view myself as an underdog anymore? No, I don't. But I think I am very aware of power dynamics. I think I always have been, but I think I was like a little more delusional in the past. (laughs) Well, here's to being, you know, a little less delusional. Yes. Cheers. (laughs) Dory, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. This was this was really fun. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lambert and Evan Ratliff. Seth Kelly edited this episode. Susan Peterson was our intern. Thanks to them. Thanks to the good folks at MailChimp for making this show possible for so long. And thanks to the London Review of Books for sponsoring the last few episodes. You can subscribe to the LRB at lrb.me slash longform. There's a fantastic discount there. Thanks to them. And thanks so much to Dory. Her book is called Thanks for Waiting. You should not wait to go read it. We'll see you next week.